0: Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod.
1: What's up, DTC pod? Welcome to today's episode. Uh, We're really excited to be joined by co founders of Tiny Organics, uh, Sophia Laurel and Carolyn O'Hare. So, guys, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about Tiny Organics and your guys' background together.
2: Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Um, So, Carolyn, myself, and our third co founder, Betsy, came together back in 2018 uh, to build the company. Uh, We have all always wanted to make kind of meaningful impact in the world and we won't go on our rant about baby food in particular but it is an invented category in the 1920s and we kind of uh, wanted to make an impact in the food space in particular. Um, I myself am originally from Finland. Uh, My why for founding the company was uh, the Finnish baby box which is a story for another day but every new parent gets it from the government. Uh, It is everything you need for a baby's first year and I kind of saw that impact that it had back home firsthand. So wanted to bring that concept here to the U.S. Uh, Betsy at the time when we founded the company was pregnant with her first uh, child and is now pregnant with her second. So she's on early maternity leave. Uh, and then Carolyn is our, you know, I have
3: a, a CBG food background, worked at Fiji Water, Beyond Meat before this. So in the startup space and uh, in the kind of natural channel as well. So we had all really complementary skill sets and came together to build Tiny Organics.
2: And the big mission for the company is really to shape the palates of generations to prefer and love vegetables, healthy flavors, plant-based foods. This obviously has lifelong impact and it's fascinating kind of how the palate shapes. There's something called the flavor window between four and seven months in a human being's life. Uh, and that's a very important period for how we eat for, for the rest of our lives, uh, and we're really wanting to be there for our parents, uh, wanting to be that kind of help-friendly resource and, and and helpful resource, and then ultimately make children's and human beings' lives healthier. So, I think that's what uh, we all share is that um, you know desire to create to create meaningful impact in the world.
0: And, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into one of you know your guys's background, but it's It's interesting how you mentioned, you know, shifting the palates because this is something you likely have to catch the kid well, you know, super early in their life because this isn't like, you know, do this for a bit, then eat sugar, then come back to this, right? Um, it's like a generational um shift where this just wasn't an option back in the day. Is that the case?
3: Definitely. And the way we all eat as adults is very much founded in how you kind of ate as a child. Um, and culturally or in your family, it's something that's so personal to everyone as an individual and it's also something that really is universal and ties us all together, um, that we have that really personal relationship with food and with our bodies and how we consume. So we are trying to set um, people up from the earliest days to have that really positive relationship with food, specifically healthy foods, really veggie forward, um, but also tasty, we got to send you guys some samples because the food actually tastes really good.
2: And looking back, you know, it's in the last hundred plus years, we started kind of overcomplicating and overprocessing our foods. But for many millennia, human beings are thriving on, we're thriving on real whole foods, which is what we're really trying to instill that, like Carolyn said, that love of food and introducing different cultures to food uh, and and make food um, also we lean heavily into a movement called baby led weaning baby led feeding which is there's a lot of benefits to it but that's a movement where you start actually start with finger foods uh and start with real whole foods and a big part of that is as well uh, there's a lot of developmental benefits uh and then independence and dexterity and jaw development and eye hand coordination but also the fact that it's it's fun like this idea of like food is uh Eating is like an innate skill, Uh, and we're here to try to make parents again parents' lives uh, to bring some convenience into parents' lives, but also make it make it make it interesting and fun to introduce.
1: So one thing I'm really interested about in terms of the market that you guys in right are are in right is the fact that I think everyone knows when you first have a baby, you know, there's all the formula that you need to feed the baby, whether you're naturally feeding or using formula to feed. But beyond that, it's, you know, I'm not as familiar, but it seems like it's kind of like you go from the world of like formula where everything's like portioned out and you have strict feeding guidelines into just like, okay, now you can feed your baby anything. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like that niche market that you're able to, um, hone in on and what the existing options were for um, new parents who are raising a child.
3: You're absolutely right. There's really a lack of an instruction manual after breast milk or formula of how to introduce foods to your baby, and there's a whole world of food out there. It's really challenging for parents to figure out what to feed first, how to introduce new foods, and we want to make that experience you know, easier and more fun. Historically, the kind of incumbent baby food offerings are what you think of when you see baby food. It's a single ingredient, pureed, highly processed, uh, sitting on a grocery store shelf that might be older than your baby in a a glass jar. Um, And that is not the way that, you know, there's a new way that modern parents would like to introduce foods to their children.
0: How are How, are the, how is the, the aspect of the portions established? I mean, is, is it a snack? Is it supposed to be a meal? Um, you know, the kids um, grow so fast during that period of time. Like, does that change? Yes,
2: yeah, so the tiny cup is a four ounce cup and it's actually a full meal for, for a younger baby. Uh, and two tinies or like a toddler portions uh, are a meal for an older baby or younger toddler. But then what's great about Tiny, and as Carolyn mentioned, definitely need to send you some really tasty foods. It can be a healthy side or a snack as well for both for toddlers and then kids, younger kids. And we all know it's a whole other topic, but kind of the school lunches is something that I think everyone knows. That's a a category that, you know, it's something that really would need need some real innovation as well. So we have a lot of parents who are taking Tiny uh, with them. For younger children to daycare, and then also slightly older children to school as well, and we have parents coming back with their second child because we launched, we launched the company or we started working on the company in 2018, actually at a early stage seed fund called Human Ventures. You see the logo behind us, uh, and uh, they're just a great, a great uh, venture fund, but also startup studio. Uh, there were other startups here, and we always say it was very much an all ships rise mentality where. None of the uh, companies were directly competitive, but that allowed us really to give us time. Uh, they pre-seed funded us as well, but they, that allowed us to really build product market love before we launched. We have a great story for that as well. But we launched in January of 2020, kind of right into the pandemic. So we often always say also that we were we feel very fortunate that we were able to meet a real need during those times. So given the food is made fresh, shipped, frozen, uh, direct to your door, um, uh, we were kind of, and we partnered with Food Bank of New York City as well, which was a kind of founding city. So I think a lot of benefits from that perspective as well. Um, but yeah, Tiny can, you can have Tiny from six months, or uh, your baby can have Tiny from six months, uh, all the way up to three years and beyond.
0: I would love to, to tap into that story that you mentioned that, that you could expand on in terms of like buying more time, like um, how uh, what was that stage like? Um, when you partnered with the studio, and, and how did that help you out?
2: Yeah. So the story is that we sent one email to a parent group here in New York, and uh, looking just for, looking for founding families for the company, and we were overwhelmed with responses, and over uh, some hundreds of parents reached back out, and we had to cap it at a hundred, and then it was a ninety degree day in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and we literally had. 100 plus parents come to pick up food from essentially complete strangers, unmarked, unmarked coolers, unmarked cups. And we always laughed at that's when we know that we had found the white space. But the white space at the time, to Carolyn's point, was really the products out there had not been innovated on and weren't what the modern parent really wants and, and, and needs. So um, that was an incredible story for us. And we, we will remember it forever. Uh, and what ended up happening is we chose from that group a smaller group of like a power tester families. Uh, And then Carolyn was driving the car and I was running up to these families homes to really uh, uh, kind of give them the samples. And we, but that pre-seed funding and that time together early days allowed us to really perfect the the product before
3: we ever launched. We did really extensive consumer testing, um, which is a little different when your consumer is a baby, but we had parents giving their babies all different versions of each of our recipes. Trying them, giving us feedback, taking pictures or sending videos so that we could really hone in on exactly what would really resonate most with both parent and baby.
1: When you guys were at that stage, I'm really curious about what it was like raising funding for a company like this, right? I'm sure that you're able to demonstrate, okay, there's a market here, obviously toddlers need to eat, um, and that hasn't necessarily been captured yet, but... In terms of the actual business you're building, there are a lot of complexities as it pertains to food, making sure the food's delivered on time, making sure the portioning's right, that the nutrition certifications are right, and all these different things. So, why don't you just walk us a little bit through the early stages of your fundraising process? What was it like? What 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 ultimately gave investors conviction to um, you know support your business and build alongside you?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with what we talked about just now around having found that kind of product market fit, product market love, as we like to say. Um, and we had that time with that original uh, funding to really uh, make sure, like Carolyn was saying, to like make sure that we had, we knew that we had a, a, a market already in place uh, and we knew that we had the product to serve that market. But so much of fundraising is also the opportunity, the you know, market size, the right team, uh, timing, um, as we've seen this year, the macroeconomic environment is very different from from what it was back in kind of 19, 19 and, and 20 and 2021. But we were fortunate to have that initial uh, funding, which we did pitch for as well. Um, and then are we closed our seed round of 2.5 million back in 2019, uh, and you know we're still very close to our investors from from that round, and some of them are on our board still. And I think it's just ultimately finding an investor who can offer more than just capital. I think for us, it's also been always very important. It's not a mandate, but it's important to us, and we, we're proud to say that uh, half of our board is is women. Uh, Almost half of our advisors are women. We at some point had a team of all women, slightly more mixed team, which we actually prefer. It's good to have a a mixed group, diverse perspectives and viewpoints, Um, but um, that's very important for us. And that's always been the case for us where all of our investors are um, very mission aligned and impact aligned. And then. We did close our Series A of 11 million last year. So that was obviously a big, big milestone for us as well. But I think for us, we've seen that it's actually been, uh, you know, you always will hear no more than you hear yes. Uh, and, and I think for us, we just really, you mentioned, we just had really conviction in, in what we're building. Um, so it's been a tremendous journey so far.
1: So the w- one question that I have, and I, we, I totally agree with um, you on this, and I know Ramon does as well in terms of, uh, making sure that the investors that you have are not only aligned in terms of um, what it is you're building, but also with the impact as well as being like value add. So, for a company like you guys, what is being beyond like the impact and saying we care about like the health of babies, we care about making sure there's, um, you know, women in leadership and all this sort of thing? What other types of like What were some of the other value add things that your investors were able to help you guys unlock, especially at the seed stage? Was it, for example, was it help in terms of scaling up different operations? Was it hiring help? Was it um, channel partnerships? Uh, You know, what were some of the ways in which uh, your investors were able to be value add in your eyes?
3: It's pretty well-rounded. But what we really appreciate from our investors, especially those early investors, is really good critical feedback. We love for our investors and our board to ask us hard questions and really have a challenge us to be making these really strong um, data-driven decisions. So we are encouraged really constantly to back up all of our decision-making with this research and data. And luckily, all of our investors are, again, really mission-aligned. And there is so much... um, upcoming research and, you know, scientific data that's pointing towards this style of eating as being the most most impactful for this stage in our development. And we, being in food and baby food specifically, we have a kind of special niche of um, some helpful investors on the side of like pediatric nutrition that's really helpful to us And making some of those connections. Long-term, you know, visions of policy change and that sort of thing will be able to be facilitated by some investors that we have as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I would also add, I think strategic introductions has always been kind of really, I think it's important for every company, but especially in kind of the seed stage, the pre-seed stage. Uh, and then also in the very beginning, I think just the support that, you know, it was an office space and it was kind of the back end support. Uh, all those things are really important as you're first starting out, um, whether it's Definitely, I think hiring help as well, uh, especially in the early days, but also, you know, that legal, the legal support, and 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 all those pieces that come from. I think I mentioned this already, but like the other companies that were in the startup studio along with us, it was also really helpful to kind of you know share the share the insights and share the learnings, and that's how we've always felt with with our investors as well. Like Carolyn said, uh, very much on this journey with us, and I would say our investor base is consumer funds and then food and beverage focused funds and and impact funds as well now uh, increasingly. But I was talking to someone about this today that the kind of the post. it's interesting how human nature works, the post changed depending on your stage. And I think we've always wanted to do this, whether it's an event or a group of people where maybe, you know, uh, startups in series B or I, at that point growth companies, but companies in their series B, Founders could advise, you know, companies uh, that are in their Series A and then to see C- A, to, sorry, to Series Seed and then to pre-seed, um, because it's kind of like you're you're going through as like as a parent, you're going through the same things at the same time. Um, we feel like the critical mass is still in the pre-seed stage, so um, we uh, we appreciate having our investors from that stage as well along with us, but it's different. Uh, you know, it's different. Goals and 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 future-looking things in different stages of of um, of where your company is. So that's been really interesting to see.
1: Yeah, and it, I I think the the really important thing that you mentioned there is the fact that each one of these stages uh, of building the company is different. And I think you guys are at a very interesting stage because you know you have pre-seed where you're coming up with an idea. You have seed, which is you know okay, you your idea is good, your team's good you know, here's some like working capital to really see if we can like validate and like move this project forward. And then series A is really where it's saying, okay, you probably have a pretty decent shot of product market fit. Let's start, um, you know, putting some scale behind this business and see what happens. Right. So I'm very curious from uh, what were some of the metrics that you had to hit? Uh, you know, you don't have to go into two specifics, but just broad strokes. What were some of you know the types of metrics and goal and milestones that you needed to hit in seed in your seed stage to be able to um, raise your A. I
2: think that's a great. I, that's a great question. I think broad strokes generally. You know, top line revenue. You know, margins, um, customer acquisition uh, related me- metrics, customer retention related me- metrics. Um, also, some more. Um, um, more anecdotal things. I think for us, we've always, you know, emphasized our community. Um, so we could kind of showcase that we had that really engaged community uh, already. And that was done through, you know, sharing some of the feedback that we've seen. We've gotten quite a bit of press as well over the years. We've been fortunate enough. So we know that the, the message is resonating, but on kind of the core metrics would say unit economics, revenue.
3: Um, and it's been interesting between then... And now a year plus later that we are, again, looking at those same metrics, um, but weighing them a little bit differently. So we've been talking a lot recently about the quality of revenue versus the quantity and you know, not sacrificing any one for the other, but trying to really keep those core metrics of the business in line. Um, and whereas before we just needed to see a path to margin, now we really need to be hitting those metrics it's, it's again yeah shifted the goalposts since then yeah and what's the saying
2: that in, in the series c do you raise kind of the dream of the team and then you raise your series a on, on on that plus plus the metrics as well so but yeah
0: so for the people that are listening that you know might be just getting started on on their brand um you know you mentioned unit economics and you mentioned revenue. Um, I'm sure a lot of people that might be getting started are like, all right, unit economics, great. I get it. Like I have to have revenue. But, you know, with unit economics, can you dive deeper into any advice for people that are starting out? Like, you know, what are the the main things you want to look for to make sure that, you know, A, you have secured like strong unit economics and B, are there any, you know, sort of rule of thumb across, you know, logistics supply chain shipping um manufacturing marketing costs like how how does a new founder sort of take unit economics into account in the beginning in the early stages
3: i will say a lot of that mentality has probably shifted for us since the pandemic we are a lot more focused on really like supply chain security now than we were prior i think something really significant happened to the whole world two years ago that we weren't planning on um and we there was no way we could be prepared but we are trying our best to be really prepared now in the event that that were something like that catastrophic were ever to happen again so we really shifted our strategy we manufacture in-house so that we have uh, flexibility it's it's yes there's capital intensive involved but we can move really quickly Um, we're able to manage how much we want to invest in that based on the scale that we're growing at so we can have kind of everything lifting up at the same time Um, but we are yes planning our unit economics for for scalability Um, so if something doesn't have a good outlook we are pretty quick to nip it in the bud we will definitely do tests but if the tests aren't adding up and the numbers aren't working it's we try to let it go as quickly as possible. And I would say on the marketing side, mentioned
2: this earlier, but we always say that there's no stronger word of mouth than that of a mom who's convinced. So that's you know something that we've already seen. So very much the organic uh, acquisition is in our DNA, um, and that's been... A, a great thing, because as you both know, post kind of iOS updates, the D2C um, acquisition world has changed quite drastically. Um, you know, of course, we like every D2C company has been impacted. But I think for us, having that organically grown community. So I would say for a new founder, make sure you have that. And, you know, that's easier. That's not a that's not a quick thing to achieve. But I think, you know, for us, that's really been um, a, a, a great, great, great thing for us to have since the very beginning. Uh, i'll I'll give you an anecdote we still are doing but we we started doing these um tiny supper clubs we call them these community events with 15 to 25 moms and they started out um in person and it was meant to be like a regional event um and then we're still seeing that those zip codes perform better than some other zip codes um they they became virtual and now we're kind of rethinking that model but i think this idea of um how do you do community or organic acquisition at scale uh, is, is really intriguing. And I would encourage any any new founder to think about that because that's ultimately what will take your business where it needs to go.
0: So how do you, so I guess like, yeah, to, to expand on that, how do you measure organic word of mouth and like, especially like not just measure it, but then say, all right, how do we scale this?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. So it's a few, obviously, the organic acquisition mix includes a few different things. So, of course, email, SMS, I would say for us, email, SMS, um, influencer, affiliate, um, SEO, um, referral. Um, And then, of course, some of the other uh, channels that are more untested. But the irony, right, in marketing is that every channel will... You'll try a channel for a year and then it will be less effective because everyone else will kind of join that channel, if you will. So I think for us, um, I think what's really has been working really well is that affiliate piece um, as well as uh, referrals. Um, That's ultimately how do you make your customers kind of your sales force, as as a a founder friend recently said. And I thought that was really a brilliant um, way of saying it. I think for us, how that manifests itself is, really thinking about kind of meeting up parent where they are. Um, and of course, we're testing the new channels, or so newer channels. I always have that like grandma emoji because I am in my mid thirties, but I am on TikTok as well. So we do see a big opportunity there. Um, but ultimately, you know, you just relying on the paid channels, uh, it's going to be really hard to build a profitable business. Um, so for us, we've always had um, the team very focused on these um, organic channels. And as mentioned, something like email and SMS is easier to track, to your point, Ramon. Uh, and yeah. then some, unfortunately, when there's, as mentioned, this year has been from a macroeconomic perspective, more pressured. So that's when it's actually would be the perfect time to test new and untested channels. But at the same time, I think that's ultimately when when we kind of retreat and go, go back to those tried and tested channels uh, for us. But there is, you know, a couple of other things around kind of mom groups, uh, which we're very active in, different type of lead gen deals. um, And and again, just thinking about where does the conversation about food happen? And also what are those trust-based channels? Um, More than paid, you know, they would be as mentioned, affiliate, you know, influencer, SEO, like
0: that. I love the angle that you spoke about in terms of, you know, trying different things within affiliate and that might include in-person stuff, um, gatherings, uh, because when most people think affiliate, you know, they might think, oh, affiliate networks or, you know, influencer but affiliate is just a revenue sharing program and who the affiliate is is up to you to define so you know you know in the beginning of the podcast when you were talking about the kids going to school and taking this to school i mean that is a affiliate channel like you can partner with the schools um say hey this is you know recommended for your students um here is a revenue share model and that is taking sort of an offline To an online organic approach where the community is and your customer is um so i love that
2: that's that's great we have a quick anecdote there too uh pre-pandemic at a daycare in here in new york two children were eating our coconut curry which is one of our best sellers and the teacher had been i think obviously they figured it out but it was a funny story at the time i think the teacher had been wondering they're both eating this pretty you know obscure food Um, so absolutely daycare is a key strategy for us as well.
1: Yeah. And I think what you guys mentioned about the fact that you have this product that you have the, that's very physical and you have the daycares or the schools or the parents getting together. And it's like a very physical product where it's like, oh, wait, what's your kid eating that my kid isn't eating. So you, you have that opportunity amongst all your customers, as well as what you mentioned, the fact that moms are going to be some of the most vocal, uh, you know, brand evangelists because they care more about their child than anything else. And they naturally gravitate towards communities and learning tips and doing all this from each other. So I think in terms of positioning, um, you guys are kind of have the perfect storm of that combination of like, you know, the, the perfect, like ideal customer profile, who's going to be interested in not only sharing what your product is all about, but also continuing to learn, educate and um, you know go down the rabbit hole and go on that journey with, with your brand if you will. So um, as kind of a segue, once you guys have built up the acquisition sort of retention engine, uh, if you will, the next challenge that you need to tackle is uh, you know supply chain, related um, as we were kind of alluding to before so Carolyn could you talk to us a little bit about what it really takes to build and structure a um, supply chain for li- like this with like organic food products um, that you know are perishable that need to be delivered that need to be made and created into all these different recipes so how do you think about structuring that and being able to create um, this amazing end experience for your for your end customer
3: definitely there's it's uh, a long and ongoing journey that requires you to relook at it over and over again, based on changes in the market or environment or, or in your business. But we, um, a couple really key decisions along the way. So first, manufacturing you can um, choose to work with the contract manufacturer or manufacturer in house. And as I was alluding to, there's every business will have a different answer to that. But for us, it turned out that in-house manufacturing was going to be the most, uh, most efficient, um, we've really found a lot of efficiencies over uh, the last year, especially post-pandemic. Um, and it's enabled us to move quickly and, you know, add recipes or move them, make really quick changes, especially based on customer feedback really directly. Uh, but that said, it comes with a lot of responsibility and requires capital as well. So there's, there's a balance in that choice. Um, another key decision kind of driving all of the supply chain choices is the product mix so we have a lot of SKUs um, and we of course as creatives we would want all of the SKUs in the world but sometimes you've got to really look at that and what our customers saying to you what our sales saying to you Um, and not all SKUs are created equal they don't sell equal either so and they don't cost the same so we We'll really regularly kind of look at our SKU mix, um, cut the ones that are not benefiting to the, the, the net value on where we need our margins to be or, or our costs to be. Um, and then on the back end, to fulfill to customers, we, you know, really first priority is for customers to have a good experience. Um, and there are many challenges doing that when you're shipping something to someone a box with dry ice and using a third-party provider. There's so many things that can go wrong along the way. Um, so what we really try to, and a lot of things that are also out of our control, we aren't FedEx or anything like that. So what we, you know, to mitigate that, we really invest a lot in um, customer experience. Our customer experience team is so strong, and we've got a, a rock star, you know, director of customer experience. We're as transparent as we possibly can be with customers um, and try to really open lines of communication. And like you mentioned, Blaine, we have a really engaged customer base just based on being parents and they're, they're buying food for their kids. So uh, fortunately for us, that means that customers will communicate to us really immediately if there's a problem. And we appreciate that because then we have the opportunity to fix it. Um, So we, you know, all of those decisions around what kind of packaging we use, what kind of where we're shipping from, these are really customer-led decisions. And
1: just to kind of piggyback off that, um, you know, one thing that, is really interesting about supply chains and all the difficulties about them or the fact that sometimes it's not just the person you're depending on but it's the person that they depend on as well right um so in a product like yours you have several different inputs right so you've like you're saying you've got the packaging component you've got the shipping component you've got the um the dry ice component and the actual uh vegetables and the recipes and all these different products skews so um You know, how do you, is that something you think about? Are you thinking about like the supplier of your supplier as as it pertains to supply chain or, or, um, you know, what are some of the other corner cases that you're like thinking about to get ahead of the curve, if you will?
3: Definitely. And we think about it constantly. Um, It requires a lot of uh, extensive planning. I might be something of an Excel wizard. So I've got a lot of really fancy, fancy (laughs) spreadsheets. (laughs) um, to, to balance all of these things. And we really look at the, you know, analyze the risk area of each of our items. So, um, you know, if we're buying something from the state next door, it's, it's pretty easy for it to get here. If we're buying something, um, from Canada, okay, it's a little bit further. So we try to manage our, you know, keeping cash in mind, but really manage our inventory, um, Uh, to mitigate the risk that we have so anticipating that if there's a delay or the person having a delay is having their own delay from their own supplier like you said we try to keep a healthy healthy amount of cover for ourselves just in case something were to go wrong which kind of brings us back to building for security um, because it's not a matter of if but when something will go wrong because it will um, and to have as many kind of backup solutions in our back pocket that we can, whether it's a quick ingredient switch or a supplier switch, we've got a like emergency uh, solution just in case anything goes wrong.
0: And, and people might be, th- I mean, like, you know, you you mentioned earlier, you've taken it in house production, et cetera, but there's still, right? Like raw, um, what's it called? Raw materials, suppliers. So um, you always have to be on the lookout for this but the reason you take it in-house is just mitigate more risk. There's still risk involved, obviously, but you know, now, you know, what, what are some of those risks that are mitigated? Is it less supplier, less probability of things breaking and yeah, just less suppliers that you have to deal with?
3: Definitely. So by being manufacturing in-house, um, we are not competing for line time with any other companies. So we, um, all the time that there is in a day can be used to make our own product. So on a time perspective, on actual production, we own all of our own time. Um, and then additionally, we have a little bit of storage space. We've invested in some storage space so we can purchase a little bit more to keep a little bit more of a buffer in storage in the event that something goes wrong. And then additionally, really, especially because we make food to have our own handle on quality control so to be super hands-on set the highest standards that we possibly can in-house and not be dependent on someone because again in, in food anything can happen and we are selling food to babies so it's absolutely a non-starter to have any sort of quality issue um, so to maintain be able to maintain that standard where we're kind of mitigating that risk as well which if you have a any sort of quality problem it has supply chain repercussions down the line um, so we definitely have more, more comfort taking that responsibility on. Yeah, I think
1: that's really smart in terms of like what you were saying, just knowing how important your end customer is and that this is the food that's going into their body and being able to own as much of that supply chain um, and value chain as you can. Uh, And that takes me into my last like supply chain oriented question, which is, which ties a little bit into demand, right? Um, How do you guys balance between knowing what your demand is going to be. I mean, I'm assuming there's a level of subscription that you have because babies, you know, they are infants as you will. Uh, they're eating pretty regularly. So that becomes, I guess, a more predictable part of the business. So how do you guys factor in like surges in demand? How do you coordinate with like, you know, marketing and performance campaigns versus what you have on the, in the back of the house to be able to back it up?
2: Yeah. So on the marketing side, there's definite seasonality to the business. Um, so, Q1 is like our Super Bowl. Uh, so very strong Q1 are always. Um, we think it's also because it's, we're kind of like a health and wellness product for baby. Uh, so we know that there's similar seasonality to some other D2C uh, brands that we're, we're friendly with. Uh, and of course, summer months can be a little bit people are traveling, but, but we get a lot of feedback around, hey, can I update my shipping address? Like we're traveling now, but still definitely, uh, you know, uh, there's some... Again, us, from a seasonality perspective, summer months, maybe sometimes a little bit more, more quiet as people are traveling, but then kind of Q3, very strong again. And then Q4 is interesting because we are not, not that traditional stocking stuffer product. I mean, we have our gift card functionality um, in, 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 in progress at the moment, but um, it's interesting because from a D2C perspective, media is quite expensive um, in Q4 we are testing these pieces and uh, testing different marketing moments throughout the year. Uh, and I think we, of course, have promos and promo schedule as well um, o- online. So we'll be able to plan a little better kind of. And then we also have um, certain SKUs. Carolyn touched on this earlier, sell sell better than others. We've just recently launched bundles their one time purchases. If you want to buy without subscription, it's a best sellers bundle and an adventurous eater bundle. Uh, and there's two skews or two meals each uh, of each skew. Uh, and uh, this is also to uh, encourage uh, trying the food again and again, because that's also a key piece. when you're trying a new when a child is trying a new food, it may take a few tries uh, for them to like the food and prefer the food, especially if it's a vegetable forward food. So from that perspective, that's been a great experiment as well. And we wanted to offer, so how the company currently is, just, we're mainly a subscription company, so you can you can order 12 or 24 pack online with different cadences, but we wanted to offer it that kind of easy one-time purchase option as well, uh, which is super quick, quick to purchase. But I would say that's from a marketing perspective. Um, and we, we really
3: work to, you know, the kind of both departments will work together. Demand forecasting is definitely both art and science, but we use that subscription data and a lot of really detailed cohort analysis to identify like which of these marketing moments is the most successful. And when we repeat it, make sure that we're planning for that appropriately. Um, and so we use that, you know, both of those in conjunction to kind of build out our demand forecast models. And then we plan production and inventory accordingly, but as especially right now, and especially for like early founders, you need to kind of manage that with the, the cash that gets tied up in manufacturing inventory. So that's it's always a balance that you're trying to strike. Um, so would definitely recommend for early founder to have a watchful eye over what kind of inventory you are uh, investing in because it, it leave, does leave money kind of tied up. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And The other lever
2: there on the marketing side, of course, is the marketing spend as well, which you can control for. Uh, one moment we forgot to mention was back to school. That's a big marketing moment for us. So. I can
1: imagine uh, with with all the toddlers going back to daycare and then all the moms telling the other moms, it's it's definitely got to be a really exciting time for, for the business. So you guys are obviously gearing up for that now. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on on your website, which I found really interesting was your gifting section. Um, I think it's a really unique sort of uh, way to introduce the brand for other people. I think it's a very thoughtful to give as a gift. It's like maybe one of, you know, everyone's giving like little baby toys and I'm sure different moms have like a million different toys for their baby. And they're like, the last thing I need is a baby toy. So, um, could you talk to us a little bit about how you guys like deployed this like gifting program and maybe some of the results you've seen from it so far to date?
2: yeah absolutely we always say it's like a give a gift of healthy eating to your point uh like so um for us what we do is um gift to um have influencers gift uh to their networks as well which has been really interesting um whereas we of course track a lot of their conversions via the codes but that's been a really nice nice uh uh, way to really for influencers, I would say we say influential moms, actually, like alpha moms in the community. So it's not about the number of followers, it's actually your influence within your community. But that's been a really nice touch with the uh, influence alpha moms that we've been working with for some time, for them to gift uh, boxes to their networks. Um, and also, it's as mentioned. We see in Q4 we see definitely a spike in gifting, but that's the nice thing I think with Tiny is that it's actually giftable throughout the year. Uh, and to your point, there's you can leave a note, you can add some kind of swag swag items. We have a really cute bib um, as, as well as some other some other items you can kind of. Um, add to make it even more giftable. One thing also to mention is that BabyList, they're the largest baby registry uh, in the U.S. after Amazon. Uh, So they did invest in our Series A and they're a great partner of ours as well. So we're in the process of uh, becoming giftable on their site as well as part of our registry, uh, which will be really great, uh, you know, kind of legion for us as well. Um, And for our product, we,
3: you know, baby showers and first birthdays is such a cultural moment for Americans and we were getting a lot of grandparents that wanted to buy gifts for their grandchildren so the gifting opens up a whole other set of it's not just parents buying direct but it's the aunts and uncles and grandparents that are want to buy food for their their little one as well
0: i think you know this is just eating your own dog food in terms of what you said earlier about the strategic investors i mean every investor you've mentioned it clearly has a purpose behind partnering with you um and i think you know short capital is scarce right now but just the marginal benefit of these strategics is enormous and with the gifting component i mean that's not only a leverage, a lever for growth, but it's also a lever for community building. Like I'm sure you then build these relationships with these parents, these grandparents over time. And one thing I'm curious about, and I'm sure it's probably the most, you know, satisfying, rewarding part of the business is what happens with these babies over a period of time? Like talking about, not saying like, you were saying experimental. I'm like, well, this is not an experiment, this company, but I'm just, you know, um, I mean, it, like I wonder, you know, second time parents that are now using this are like, wow, like, you know, it's clearly very different. I mean, I have five nieces and nephews. My sister gave um my niece a lollipop the other day at like 11pm. She just went crazy. Um, And I'm sure you know, if you put babies side by side, and you know, you feed one, you know, all this organic stuff, and, and another one has sugar. I mean, I wonder, like, you know, how, what are some of the success stories? Like, have you guys gotten there yet? And even, you know, it's early, but even all the way throughout their adult life, are they going to continue these patterns of healthy eating? Like it's, it's embedded. Um, You know, there, there's no better way to have a life full of energy than just eating healthy. So um, do you have any of those stories yet?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say building a startup is very much a grind, but The feedback that we get from our parents makes it all worth it. We, Carolyn mentioned uh, the grandparents earlier. So we did receive a gift during COVID, which was a granddad and a grandchild eating tiny together. And, you know, it's just like melted our hearts. But I think we hear this from our parents to a point, uh, Ramon, around second time parents in particular. We hear both the feedback of, like, I wish I would have had this for my first child. Uh, Someone called their, like, someone mentioned that the first child was like a, typical beige food eater. I think she was, you know, alluding to, you know, uh, pasta and the kind of the white foods. And, uh, and, you know, we, we, we say all this to say we, we never want to mom shame or guilt or parent shame or guilt. We all, we all do our best, but I think for tiny being, being that helpful resource for parents, but we get feedback daily. Um, and you know, we get pictures daily. We get, that's why I think on the marketing side, the user-generated content is definitely, Something again, going back to that social proof piece, but we definitely hear that feedback that it's just helped make parents' lives easier. I think a lot of our our parents um, feel, obviously um, vast majority of our parents work full time. So there just isn't enough time. Making your own food is time consuming. So I think this idea of like feeling that you're offering something healthy uh, to your child on a daily basis really, I think, Gives a lot of fulfillment to our parents, um,
3: and so. there's nothing more satisfying to us than when a customer cancels their subscription because they said, "I've been feeding my child tiny for years, and now they have a great relationship with food, and they're eating vegetables along with the rest of the family." Like that means that we, you know, did our jobs, and it's we're happy for their family to be able to be enjoying. All the healthy foods together at the table Yeah,
1: i love how you guys can own that entire like portion from the time like i mean i'm almost even imagining like you guys can throw like little graduations for them when they not only graduate from tiny but graduate from like formula into tiny right like that's a big moment for them when they're actually able to start having real food um, and you can kind of support them through this journey and i think that you know it's it's such a critical point in the development of children and being able to feed them the best foods possible during this age where you're actually growing the brain is developing the body's developing and um you know build those healthy habits you're speaking like a parent yeah right? i mean i i feel like my i feel like, <laughs>
2: yeah, I, was like I'm not I feel excited. like my parent my yeah. parents did it to me they had
1: me eating like actually i remember my dad would always say that like as a baby they wanted to exp- expose me to like all the f- not as a baby but like when i was little they wanted to expose me to all the different foods and cuisines and palates so like when i grew up i wasn't like a picky eater and now like i literally will eat you know anything because um, and you know maybe that has to do with with some of that diversity that palette diversity i had back in the day but um i just think that owning and being able to like really deliver and pick that niche and be able to own that is such a, a valuable um, way to, to build a business. So as we kind of look forward um, to what you guys are continuing to build out and some initiatives, um, you know, what, what's next on the roadmap for you guys, are you guys looking to expand into retail at all um, or like last mile stuff or like where, how do you, I guess, build and get even closer to the communities and the parents uh, and children that you're currently serving?
2: Yeah, I think being an omnichannel brand has always been part of our plan. I think we both share this sentiment that we want to create impact to as many families as we can. And you can really only do that by being omnichannel. So that's definitely on the roadmap for us also. This focus on scale uh, is is really important at the moment, and obviously, as mentioned, this year has been, you know, quite challenging for, for 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 all most companies. You know, just to make sure that we're, you know, doing the right things and prior prioritizing the right things. We have a fantastic team, uh, so just making sure that. Um, again, I think for us, where the growth will come from is really that expanding the channels and then ultimately expanding our product lines. So aging down and aging up, um, and as mentioned, this. Big opportunity on on that higher age range as well. Um, so lots lots to do and uh, lots of opportunity. Uh,
0: what about the team? What does the team currently look like, and and what are the next sort of additions or or expansions where, where you're looking to to add new team members to?
3: It's a, a lean team. There's about eight of us in the office. Um, we have a addition that doesn't count in our manufacturing facility. So another 15 or so that are manufacturing the food but everyone has has really just worn many hats beyond their job description um and we plan to keep the team really tight and we know that you know everybody is so capable um yeah a lot of rock stars on the team so we're probably gonna keep uh, just this team and, and rock out with this group for a while longer
2: yeah absolutely And identifying those key needs that we have and then hiring based off of that absolutely in the future but yeah we couldn't be happier with who we who we currently have um they're all amazing
1: well that's super exciting we're excited to hear about your roadmap see how you guys continue to expand into omni channel as well as like you were saying age down and age up i mean i think if if a mom is busy and and parents you know have uh have a lot on their plate and find a lot of value in feeding infants. I'm sure nothing changes when they get to Kindergarten or first grade or second grade, they're, you know, they, they're still, they still want to be nutritious. They're still developing. So I think that whole concept of being able to be aware of like where your opportunities are to like grow as your business, what to focus on now in the immediate term and then grow into those, whether there's channels or product lines when you guys are ready. I think that's a very thoughtful way to think about the growth and trajectory of the business. Um, so as we wrap up here, uh, where can our listeners connect with you guys? Where can they find you guys individually? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? or um, And where can they connect with uh, the brand as well? Where can they find more about Tiny Organics and start feeding their, their kids the right way?
2: Amazing. Yeah, Tiny Organics, just tinyorganics.com. Uh, and then we're um, on Instagram, at tinyorganics. We are on LinkedIn as well. And then our Instagrams are at Sophia Lorel and at Carolyn O'Hare. Did I miss anything? I think that's mainly. And our emails are Sophia and and Caroline at Tiny Tiny Organics. Organics. So please, honestly, we're always, we're like an open book and we always feel it's, I think it's very important that founders, all founders, uh, female founders, but all founders really kind of support each other. So if there are any questions. Um, For us, we'd always love to be a helpful resource as well.
1: Well, yeah, I wanted to thank you guys. This was a super helpful episode. Um, I think we we covered a lot, we learned a lot. I love how you guys are approaching everything and continuing to build the business. So, um, you know, wanted to thank you guys for joining us today on D2C Pod and hope to keep up with you guys and see all the growth that you guys are enjoying soon.
3: Fantastic. Thank you so much for having us.